This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by someone who's written more than a dozen episodes of Star Trek and has recently moved into short fiction as well. It's Lisa Klink. Hi Lisa, how are you? Hi there, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. How are things for you? I'm going pretty well. It stopped raining finally. <laughs> really, we've had a lot of rain here today as well. It's been like Ferengana. <laughs> Now, in a way, it's not usual, um, but we had some uh, some pretty bad rain for a couple of weeks here. But it's it's lovely today. Yeah, I, I, the the reason that I got in touch with you actually was funnily enough because I saw you in the inaugural edition of Star Trek Explorer magazine, and I thought, oh, there's a name that I you know haven't heard about for a while, and I thought she's someone who would have an interesting uh, perspective on you know actually working on Star Trek. H- how was it that you came to writing the short fiction? Did did they approach you, or did you approach them, or how did that come about? Uh, they approached me actually and asked if I would like to write a short story about Q, and I said, well, that sounds like fun. Uh, and it was. I really had a good time writing it. I bet. Yeah, it's a great story. Uh, for anyone who hasn't yet got a, a, a copy of, you know, issue one of Star Trek Explorer, it's well worth checking out. And I guess, although you have written a, uh, over a dozen episodes of Star Trek, you never got to write for Q on screen. So it must be kind of a real treat to get to write for him in print. Oh, absolutely. Q is a whole lot of fun. I bet. I bet. And coming back soon as well. I mean, I don't know if you've been watching Star Trek Picard, uh, you know, if you've seen season one, but pretty soon we're getting the return of Q, I think. Yes, I'm really looking forward to it. I, mean, I think that his dynamic of Picard good. is the best. I mean, I had the choice to write mm-hmm. Q with any cast and I, I chose the next generation cast because I really wanted to see him spar with Picard a little more. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Although Janeway had a kind of interesting dynamic with Q, I think. I, th- I think that kind of helped because Kate Mulgrew and John Delancey were quite good friends, as I understand it. So yes. they had a real rapport kind of straight out of the gate. Um, but yeah, obviously, it's, you know, it's it's Q and Picard is the, is the you know, that's the kind of core relationship, isn't it? Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about how you first got involved um, with Trek, because I think, although we think of you maybe more as a Voyager writer, it was actually Deep Space Nine that you started on. Um, and you were an intern on that show, is that right? I was. I did a writer's guild internship on Deep Space Nine, which was fantastic. It was like, you know, eight weeks of grad school. I got to sit in on uh, staff meetings and pitch meetings and go to production meetings. And it was a really good education. So I actually pitched them a bunch of stories and they bought a story from me and had me write the episode Hippocratic Oath. 
uh, and that turned out very well. And at the same time, they were looking for staff writers on Star Trek Voyager. So Iris Stephen Bear passed along my script to Jerry Taylor and uh, recommended me, and they hired me on staff at Voyager. So just talk me through a little bit about, you know, starting off as an intern. I mean, what did that mean? Were you making the coffee? Were you holding the whiteboard marker? Uh, I mean, what does the intern do in that kind of a situation? Because I suppose we're used these days to the idea of interns in, you know, in offices and so on. But a writing intern, what does what does that involve? Is it a creative job? Is it a kind of shadowing experience? Is it, you know, really being kind of the dog's body who they can get to do whatever they don't feel like doing themselves, the coffee run or whatever? Uh, give me a bit of an idea of, of what that's like. Well, it, really, it wasn't so creative as it was shadowing. Uh, I got to sit in on the writer's room when they were having their story meetings, and I was the one at the whiteboard with the dry erase marker. So I was taking notes and... Uh, Basically, I just got to see the, the stories uh, take shape, which was fantastic. I also got to sit in on pitch meetings, and so I got to see what the writers responded to in terms of uh, stories. And I got to go down to the set and watch them shooting, because uh, we were on the Paramount lot, and so I just had to basically walk across the lot to go watch them shoot. And I got to go to production meetings where they were talking about you know budget and schedule and costuming and sets, and it was a fantastic education. I'm really glad I did it. I bet. And obviously, you know, the DS9 writer's room is sort of famous in Star Trek history these days as this kind of, uh, I don't know, just this sort of crucible of amazing ideas. I mean, they were really innovating. They were pushing Trek in new directions around that time. Yes, I, I really was very lucky to be in the Deep Space Nine uh, writer's room. And uh, all, as you mentioned, you know, all of those writers have gone on to do wonderful things. And they were they were very accepting. I mean, I was the only woman in the room, and I never felt excluded. I never felt like I was just the intern. I, I really felt like I was involved. So could you, while you're standing at the whiteboard with the pen in hand, I mean, are you free to chip in ideas uh, at, at that level? Or do you have to just kind of keep quiet and write down what other people say? I mostly kept quiet. Uh, I mean, I, okay. sometimes I would suggest ideas, but it was generally when, when there was a lull and nobody was saying anything, then sometimes I might pipe up. But I knew that my, my purpose was not to be another writer in the room. But was there an expectation that by the time you came to the end of the internship, you would try to sell a story yourself? I mean, was that the kind of obvious goal going into that? Or or was that very much an outside chance? No, I, it was definitely the goal to, to sell a story. And because they had gotten mm. to know me during the past eight weeks as a writer, they actually let me write the story instead of just buying it from me and writing it in-house. So I was very lucky to get that mm. opportunity. That's amazing. So, so how did that come about? You were pitching, were you pitching ideas to them regularly? I mean, were you, you know, going home at night and coming up with uh, story ideas constantly to try and tempt them? Well, I had actually already been pitching before the internship. Uh, I had, I had been oh, okay. in a pitch, I think, three or four times. And then, obviously, mm. during the internship, when I got to hear them taking pitches from other writers, it gave me a lot better idea of what they were looking for and how to pitch better. And so I, I pitched a lot more successfully, you know, once I had seen it uh, happening in front of my face. Right. That's that's interesting. So you've been sort of on the other side of the table or the other side of the room. Mm -hmm. um, so had you written a spec script originally then? What was the kind of process to, to get even to get into the room and being allowed to pitch? Uh, yes, I'd written a spec next generation. Uh, and sent that in. E even before then, I had gone to a Star Trek convention in which they had a writer's uh, panel. And I believe it was like Ron Moore, Brennan Raga, Joe Manoski, uh, and uh, they were talking about how they would accept spec scripts. 
And they were the only show in, in town that would do that. And that, in fact, nobody does it anymore. And so I thought, well, I like Next Generation. I can write a spec for that. So I did, and I sent it in. And fortunately, I had no idea that they got thousands and thousands of scripts like that every year. Uh, but I was lucky. I got um, read by an intern, and they recommended me for uh, coming into pitch. So what was the spec script about that you wrote for them? Uh, it was centered on Jordy, and there was a, a race of telepathic aliens on board. And because of his visor, he was the only one who could understand them or, or pick up their telepathy. But they were very emotional and overwhelming, and so he had to work with Troy to learn to be a bit of an empath himself. That's interesting, and that's quite an unusual pairing for Next Gen as well, I think. Well, that, that's what I was after, was I wanted to take the, the chief engineer and put him in, an, in, a, in a different kind of situation. And then, obviously, so when it came to Deep Space Nine, so you're, you're working there, you've been pitching ideas to them for a while. And what was it about this one idea for Hippocratic Oath that sort of pushed it over the line? Because I think it was a story was partly yours and partly someone else was pitching. Is that right? There was kind of two angles coming together there. Uh, they, they did end up blending it with another pitch, yes. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I, I had never actually heard that pitch. Uh, but I guess I had it uh, sort of waiting in the wings and decided to combine it with mine. It's funny because I remember I came in with this really long, worked-out story about Bashir getting thrown into this alien prison, and he had to kill, survive, and it was this very detailed story. And they took three words mm. out of it. They took Bashir in jail. And so <laughs> we started from that premise, and we started talking about, you know, other, you know, prisoner of war movies, like, you know, Stalag 17 and, um, you know, The Great Escape and stuff like that. And we ended up uh, kind of modeling the story after Bridge Over the River Kwai. Uh, with the Bashir right. as uh, the Alec Guinness character and O'Brien as the William Holden character. And then we had them get captured by the Dominion, uh, by the Jem'Hadar. And uh, the story can develop from there. So so how does that happen if, if you say they, they take, you know, the real bare bones of your story and then they say, and we want you to combine it with this? Does someone then give you like a an outline or a, a paragraph on what it is that you're doing? Or do you know what I mean? How How does that... What's your starting point then to actually go and start writing the thing? Well, fortunately, uh, Deep Space Nine and, and Voyager um, have a writer's room in which we break down the stories together. So we'll start with the premise, whether it's, you know, three words or whether it's a whole paragraph that we've bought from a writer. And you stand in front of the whiteboard and you work out, okay, scene one, teaser, who's there, what happens? In act one, scene one, what happens? And so you develop a really specific, detailed outline. And then as the writer, you take that really specific outline and you go off and write the first draft. And ideally, you'll have a couple of weeks uh, to write the first draft and then bring it back and everybody gives you notes and then you go off and do a rewrite. And again, I was very lucky in that I had a chance to do the first rewrite myself. Um, and then Ron Moore took it over after that, which I thought was great because I love Ron. Uh, I think he's very talented. And so I was really happy to have him working on my script after me. And uh, he added a lot of really nice stuff. Someone else who got their career started thanks to a spec script for yes. Next Gen, I guess. Yes. Yeah. yeah, amazing. So were you involved in breaking the story then? Were you in the writer's room at that point? Were you, I mean, as an intern or as a writer or how did that work? Or, or did they kind of take over and then give it back to you? Uh, yes, as a writer, I was in the room uh, when we broke it. And I they see. had uh, the okay. current intern, you know, standing up at the at the board with the, <laughs> with the dry erase marker. So at that point, right. I was yeah. uh, I had moved up in the ranks. Wow, that must have been quite exciting then to be, you know... I guess, on the sofa rather than at the board. Absolutely. There must be an enormous amount of pressure then after, you know, you've all worked on this story together, you've come up with the with the, the outline or, or whatever, you know, you've broken the story and then you've got to go away and, you know, lock yourself in a room, presumably, and actually hammer it out. I mean, how 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 detailed 
is the brief that you've got at that point? I mean, you, you know what which scenes are happening where and so on. You know kind of what all the key beats are, but you you presumably still have some creative leeway to in how you tell the story, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, with the dialogue, I mean, you've ever seen that says, you know, Bashir and O'Brien are in the shuttlecraft out on a mission. And so you have to come up with, you know, what is the mission? And, you know, what is the dialogue? Or what are they saying to each other? You know, how do you establish that relationship? And how is it going to change over the course of the episode? Uh, so there's certainly a lot of leeway. Um, it, I, it was It was a really good experience. It's funny when you say that, it reminds me there's that great line in that opening conversation in the runabout where O'Brien basically says to Bashir, why can't, um, why can't Keiko, you think he's going to say, why can't she be more like you? And, and he says, why can't Keiko be more like a man? Right. I mean, that kind, which, which really is a fantastic bit of dialogue, I think, because it really gets to the heart of that kind of bromance and also, mm-hmm. you know, Miles as a character um, and so on. So, yeah, I suppose a lot of, a lot of the texture of, I mean, obviously, people love Deep Space Nine for its, you know, big arcs and the war and all this kind of stuff. But I also adore those characters, I think, and that kind of level of, you know, sort of detail and, and the, the small elements as well as the big elements. Yes. If you don't care what happens to the characters, then it doesn't matter how, how great the sci-fi concept is. You know, you really have to, it has to matter to, to the people that you really are affectionate about. And you managed in that episode, you had two great pairings because you had O'Brien and Bashir, who we you know we know as this kind of romance uh, couple in a sense, but you you end up sort of turning that on its head and, and making things quite tough for them. But then you've also got Odo and Worf having this uh, fantastic B story, and weirdly, it only struck me when I watched it this week. They both resolve with the you know a, a disagreement that is then covered up. Both Odo and Bashir deliberately kind of keep their antagonists misdemeanors uh, away from scrutiny to some extent they, they both kind of brushed them under the carpet i thought that was really interesting that you've got these two separate stories but there are definite parallels between them well ideally that's what you want is you want to have the b story echo the a story in some way even if it's you know just thematic mm. or, or character relationships Right, that's interesting. And, and was that a kind of understood rule on Trek or, or just in script writing generally? I know Michael Pillar was quite keen on all these sorts of things on Next Gen, but um, I was interested that that would carry over to Deep Space Nine because I, I sort of thought sometimes on DS9 it feels like the, the A and the B stories are <laughs> wildly different things that just, just happen to be happening at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you don't always you don't always get what you shoot for, you know. But ideally, you want it right, to be okay. related. But uh, sometimes it just doesn't quite work out that way. Um, and what about the drug addiction aspect of the story? Was that something that you researched when you were working on that? I mean, is there time when you're bashing out one of these stories to kind of go and and think, uh, you, you know, what what can I where can I find inspiration uh, for something like this? Because it certainly in the way that it's directed and acted and so on, it sort of feels like those actors have kind of watched people, you know, coming off some kind of drugs. I don't know. Do, do you know what I mean? It, it feels like there's an element of, of reality there. I'm curious whether for you as the writer, that's something that you're kind of going out and searching for. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the more you can tie it into the reality of, of, you know, non-sci-fi experience, the better. You know, you mm. want to make it a metaphor uh, for something that people might, might be encountering in their real lives. And that's, I suppose, one of the things with Star Trek in particular, isn't it, is it's often operating on two levels at once. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the kind of sci-fi uh, futuristic stuff and then you've got the kind of morality play or the, you know, hard-hitting relatable drama or whatever. And you're always trying to, you need to kind of keep them both in balance somehow. You need to kind of keep both of those elements working in the story. 
Yeah, I, I believe that's that's when Star Trek and, and sci-fi in general, I think that's when it's really working well, is when it sort of comments on contemporary society or contemporary character issues. So tell me a little bit about how you ended up jumping over to Voyager, because I think that was that was an unexpected surprise, right? This, this show, it, it must have started uh, by that point, I think, because you joined in the second season. But um, how did how did that come about? They were looking for an extra writer and you got the call to say, would you join them? Yeah, basically, it was a total surprise to me. I mean, I, I what I found out later was that Ira, you know, had passed on my script to Jerry Taylor because he knew that she was looking for a staff writer. Um, but first I heard of it was I got the phone call from Jerry Taylor, you know, saying, would you like to be on staff at Voyager? I think my response was, really? But, uh, yes, she assured me it was a real offer and I absolutely jumped at the chance. Uh, it was my, my first, you know, staff gig, as you might guess, and it was absolutely a wonderful experience. It was, I was very lucky to, to start there, you know, kind of start at the top. And, and how did that happen? Did you have to have an interview or anything, or did they just offer you the job then and there? Well, what I, what I didn't realize was that Ira Bear had passed over my script to Jerry Taylor and said, if you're looking for a staff writer, maybe you should check her out. And she read the script and I guess she liked it mm-hmm. because she called me and said, would you like to come on Voyager? And I think my response was, really? But uh, yes, in fact, it was a real offer. And uh, I started, I believe, the next week. Wow, gosh, that must have been a, a <laughs> baptism of fire in a way. Yes, it was It was wonderful, though. It was, it was a really good show. And Jerry was a wonderful showrunner. So I kind of started at the top, you know, really a really functional, good show that, you know, I knew would get picked up, you know, for the next season. It wasn't going to get cancelled anytime soon. So it was a really good place to start. Sure. So you had, I guess, Michael Piller still there i think when you joined maybe and jerry taylor but there was a transition michael pillar was still there for my first year on voyager yes did you know she was going to take over in a sense was she yeah yes we knew that jerry was going to take over in uh the fifth season of the show uh in the third third season i'm sorry third season yes and were you i was kind of curious because obviously so you came on board and it seems to me like you were there for sort of jerry's heyday and then you left sort of around the same time that that she did i mean was that just a coincidence or was that were you sort of her person do you know what I mean was was there a kind of sense of that did people have you know was she your mentor and you were her sort of um (laughs) maybe I'm reaching here but I'm just curious what the kind of dynamics were Uh, she was definitely my mentor and Mm. uh, I I I really learned a lot from her uh you know especially Mm. that had to to run a good show and uh, she really kind of helped me helped me become a professional writer basically from uh, from being a freelancer and and what was her room like compared to ira's for example i mean was it a quite a different environment i guess there were two women in this instance uh, and, and one of them in a more senior position as befits uh, you know voyager in some ways um what was the atmosphere different was the kind of work going on there different would you say i mean obviously the shows uh, i actually found the atmosphere is pretty similar which which was great um you know star trek room was was very open uh, both Ira and Jerry really set a good standard of you could always throw out suggestions. And even if it was a stupid idea, nobody would like laugh at you for making coming up with a stupid idea. And they would just take it and, well, how about this instead? Or, Ooh, how about that? And it was very collaborative. And I never felt afraid to speak up uh, in either of those rooms, which was really a blessing. That's interesting. Yeah. When I spoke to Naran Shankar, he said that the motto was best idea wins that there was this kind of you know it was quite democratizing in some ways yeah so so it it really was it really was i mean even me as the the new staff writer you know if i had the best idea then jerry would say okay let's go with that 
And as a staff writer, was there a kind of expectation? Because I noticed just working my way through, I've done a little kind of uh, Lisa Klink rewatch uh, in the last few days, sort of blitzing through your episodes. And I noticed that the first ones that you do, they're always from someone else's story or you're kind of rewriting something or or one of them even is an uncredited rewrite. And then as time goes on, you start having uh, written by credits, which I guess means the whole thing is like, is your baby from beginning to end. So was that sort of part of what was understood as that job was that you would be, you'd be handed something and told, you know, make this work uh, <laughs> because we're not quite sure what to do with it or how to kind of uh, deal with it or whatever. Well, I think that as I gained more experience uh, on the show, I think probably the ideas that I was coming up with were, were better ideas. You know, initially they they gave me a lot of ideas that had been brought in by freelancers and, and you know, people who had come in to pitch um, because they knew that that idea was something they wanted to go forward with. And then, as, as I said, as I gained experience, I was able to come up with more original ideas myself. And so the first script that you worked on uh, was Resistance, yes. which was a script that had been uh, submitted or an idea that had been submitted by Michael Jan Friedman, I think, who many or certainly, you know, listeners of my age uh, and above probably will remember as a big name in the Star Trek novels uh, kind of back in that era. And I think I read somewhere that you found it quite a tricky one to get going with to begin with because uh, because of the dynamic between Janeway and this old man that she kind of befriends who, who thinks... Uh, she's his daughter and how to kind of make it Janeway's story and not his story in some ways. Yes, that, that really was the challenge was, was how to keep Janeway at the middle of everything. Um, because, you know, however the interesting the guest characters are, it always has to be about, you know, your heroes. So yeah, that was really the kind of the, the marching orders on that episode was keep it about Janeway. And this episode, I never, I don't know why I'd never, thought of this watching it but i understand was based from my reading around it was based on don quixote was the kind of inspiration i mean is that something if you're aware of that as the writer being handed the idea do you go and do a quick reread of don quixote (laughs) or do you do you know what i mean is that at the back of your mind (laughs) when when there's as is often the case with star trek that there is a kind of uh like you mentioned bridge over the river quiet before you know there is a kind of um you know a linchpin or a, a foundation in literature, history, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, is that something that you're kind of, is always there when you're writing it? Or is that, has that done its job by the time you kind of get down to it, if you know what I mean? I think really, it's just the inspiration. It's just kind of the jumping off point. Because then we need to sort of make that universe into our universe and make our heroes kind of the central figures. Uh, So it does, it does serve as just a jumping off point. Ideally, I mean, obviously, you don't want to be too, you know, stick too close to the original story. You don't want to copy it. You just want to take a take it as a leaping off point. And there was a scene in that episode, which I gather was a bit of a controversial one, which is where Janeway gets into the prison by essentially pretending to be a prostitute. Now, this, yeah. um, it's not certainly it's an unusual scene for Star Trek. I mean, we saw it in Next Gen, where uh, I think Picard and Rolaren kind of played that dynamic. Uh, in an episode right towards the end but for the captain to actually I suppose be you know using her sexuality in a sense was a an unusual step for her as a character wasn't it it was and there was a lot of conversation about that uh, about you know could we come up with a better idea or a different idea but it really seemed ultimately what it came down to is Janeway's practical and if this would work she would do it and it worked and was there pushback then? I mean, were there was the debate within the writers' room? Was there pushback from producers or, or even from Kate? I mean, was there any 
was there anxiety around it? Because I know Janeway's a character that, that it seems like there was endless anxiety about her hairstyle, her femininity, her, you know, outfits, all of this kind of stuff. People were very anxious about getting it right. I don't remember there being pushback from the actress. Um, really, the debate that I remember was within the room. And, you know, Jerry Taylor mm-hmm. in particular was really protective of Janeway and wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that she wouldn't do anything that would, you know, that would really seem out of character for her. But uh, like I said, we ultimately settled that Janeway would do what was necessary. And this was the first of a couple of stories uh, of kind of space Nazi stories that you did, basically. I mean, these guys, they're they are dressed in black. They're <laughs> real kind of fascists, basically. Uh, and then you went on to do Remember, which, again, is a kind of, uh, you know, much more uh, overtly kind of World War II uh, inflected story. Um, and I'm kind of... I've always been curious. Voyager has a lot. I mean, Deep Space Nine obviously had the whole, you know, Cardassian occupation, all that kind of stuff going on in the background and sometimes in the foreground. But Voyager 2 seemed quite preoccupied uh, with World War II and the Holocaust and the kind of legacy of that time. Um, And I'm interested whether this is something that was consciously discussed in the room or was that just part of the kind of zeitgeist at the time, maybe because of the 50th anniversary, I guess, of the the war, you know, in the 90s. was World War II something that seemed to kind of loom creatively? Yeah, I, I don't recall having a specific discussion about, you know, whether whether we wanted to stay in the World War II area. Um, I think just as we were coming up with bad guys, you know, the Nazis always are obviously are, you know, make for good bad guys and, uh, you know, alien versions of them as well. Um, and But it might be, as you said, you know, kind of in the zeitgeist at the time, but it wasn't it wasn't a deliberate uh, effort to to stick to that. And I was interested watching Resistance and also Innocence and Sacred Ground. I mean, these are some fantastic episodes that you worked on. They're quite unusual, though, in some ways for Star Trek, because I think, uh, and when I was talking to Robert Duncan McNeil a little while ago about Sacred Ground, one of the things I talked to him about was the pacing. They feel quite no, I mean, if I say slow paced, it sort of sounds like a negative thing, but they, they take their time. Do you know what I mean? They're not kind of action adventure stories. They feel much more character driven, right. much more kind of uh, almost like a kind of, you know, theatre show or something. Do you know what I mean? That's that sort of seems a little bit more the direction they're going in. Was that something that was a deliberate decision on your part or were those the kind of scripts that they tended to give you or or is that just a coincidence and, you know, you get whatever's next on the plate? Well, I think that I, I tended to be drawn toward character-driven stories, and those probably did tend to be a little more uh, slow-paced. You know, Brandon, for example, really liked you know the kind of the shoot 'em up sci-fi action stories, and so his scripts probably tended to be a little more quick-paced. But yeah, I think I, I think you could say that I was really drawn to to the kind of the more character-driven episodes. And remember, actually, was an idea, was a story from Brannon and Joe Minoski, I think, but then you ended up writing it. Why Why was that? Was that that they'd come up with it, but they didn't fancy writing it themselves? They wanted to go and do, you know, all guns blazing <laughs> action <laughs> extravaganzas? Or, uh, I mean, I mean, why does why does that happen that some that a writer doesn't carry their idea through, you know, that they hand it over to someone else? Is it just scheduling or, or what? I, it's mostly scheduling. Um, it's mostly because mm-hmm. we would take turns. You know, there were, I, I believe at the time there were five of us, uh, five staff writers. And mm-hmm. so basically when it was, you know, it was, I, I was up to do the next episode. And so if Brandon and Joe right, had a okay. good idea, uh, then they would just pass it along to me. That is a really powerful episode, I think, remember. And it, it, it's definitely, you know, talking about World War Two or whatever. I suppose it does have that real, it, it makes me think a little bit of, I know around the time of, um, 
don't know when Schindler's List came out, whether that was around, I feel like it was sort of around that time. And I know that Spielberg was very concerned with these oral history projects and kind of gathering stories and testimony. Uh, and this sort of idea, which is of interest to me, because I'm uh, a historian who works on World War Two through interviewing people, basically. So that kind of oral history approach really fascinates me. I'm curious whether that was sort of something that was in your mind when you were working on it. Do you know what I mean? That kind of contemporary concern. I suppose as people were getting older and there was this sense of, you know, needing to record those stories of that generation. Yeah, I'm sure it was in the back of my mind. I mean, I believe that the the premise of the story started with the idea of Bolana having these very realistic dreams. And it turned out to be that they were the actual memories of, of some aliens. I think what those ali- what those memories were, I think, developed as as we were in the story room and developing it. And obviously, you know, we did have in mind, you know, the, the Holocaust allegory. And then just to to go, you know, from one leather clad episode to another, you also got on a, on a more sort of, um, I don't know what I was going to say, sort of more schlocky, not that the episode is particularly, but, but it, you know, less hard hitting, maybe, let's say, uh, version <laughs> of that. You got to do Warlord, which I think is a yes. really fun episode. And also, that, that, that was I fun. was really struck watching it. A, such a great episode for Jennifer Lean. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of my favourite Keiko O'Brien episode in Deep Space Nine is the one where she's possessed by a par wraith and it's just really horrible. Um, <laughs> and I sort of felt there was a similar element of like the actress who normally plays such a nice character getting to really, uh, you know, be a badass and <laughs> kind of a really unpleasant character. But um, that must have been quite a fun one to write. Oh, yes, it was definitely fun. I mean, it, when you take... You know, take such, you know, probably the sweetest character on the ship, Kess, you know, and, and turn her the opposite way and say, you know, what if she was taken over by this evil, you know, ty- tyrant? And so, yeah, obviously, you know, taking her as far out of character as possible is is fun. And then also getting to keep the actual character of Kess alive and their, and their kind of mental duels, you know, give, you know, give her a little more to do. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun. And, and I think Jennifer really knocked it out of the park. She did, absolutely. You also got a, a big responsibility in that episode. You got to break up Neelix and Kess, <laughs> which yes. is, you know, I don't know. I, I'm curious to know what the feeling was in the writer's room by this point, because I know a lot of people these days don't love that relationship. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think they feel like it was, you know, it was definitely this episode was... Uh, you know, needed to come along at some point and kind of separate the two of them. I mean, was that, did that feel like a big responsibility writing that breakup scene? Was it a relief? Was it a kind of burden? How did you feel about that? Well, it wasn't so much a responsibility because it wasn't really my decision. You know, it's not something that I came up with and said, hey, let's break them up. You know, it's something that we had come up with in the room and obviously Jerry Taylor, you know, had approved. But uh, how to do it was, was kind of interesting because Kess was actually, you know, possessed at the time. And so you, mm. you could argue that it wasn't really Kess who did the breaking up, but it kind of stuck anyway. So it was, uh, I think, ended up being a, a little more ambiguous and that we, if we had wanted to go back in the next episode and say, oh, that was just an alien, you know, that wasn't really Kess. We could have, but we didn't. We mm. had it. We had it stick. Yeah, it's interesting, that one, that it kind of maybe that guy did her a favor you know by possessing her in that yeah. sense in that yeah who knows maybe that would never have <laughs> happened otherwise um but i mean was that was that something that was because i guess one of the things people often talk about uh voyager uh versus ds9 in terms of continuity um and certainly it seems to me the approach to continuity 
was quite different. But there there was continuity in Voyager. There were stories that were kind of carrying forward. And, and often it feels to me like um, I was quite struck watching Dreadnought, which I know you did an uncredited uh, rewrite on. There's the stuff about Tom Paris being late for meetings and, you know, all this. There are these kind of breadcrumb moments of continuity somehow threaded through Voyager, but not the sense of, you know, chapters in a novel that you maybe get in DS9 to some extent. Right. But was that something, you know, say, say that relationship, was there a sense that this isn't quite working or we need to, I mean, were there fans even then saying, we don't like these two together, let's, you know, why do they, you know, why can't she go off with Paris or why can't she, you know, find uh, <laughs> someone more suitable or younger at least? Uh, I don't recall it being in response to the fans. I think that we felt okay. in general just that the relationship had kind of gone as far as it was going to. And unless we wanted to have them like get married and have kids, which nobody really wanted to do, right. then it seemed mm-hmm. like it was it had kind of run its course. And I suppose splitting them up opens her up for, you know, other oh, and Neelix potentially up for, you know, romantic interest storylines in a way exactly that's not exactly we wanted to leave them open for for other relationships just talking about dreadnought i was quite struck by that so how does it come about um just when i looked it up on memory alpha it says uncredited rewrite and i noticed digging into it that the the credited writer on that was a producer uh an executive i think at paramount at the time i mean was that a kind of is that why that would come about that you don't get the credit for the work that you've done because it's it was, was there a sensitivity there that he's he's handed in this script and they're like Ooh, you know, <laughs> it's not quite what we need but we don't want to uh ruffle any feathers or what's no going on I, there? I don't recall there being a particular a particular consideration for that writer i mean in general we tried to keep give the freelance writers as much credit as possible you know if they actually put in the work to write you know a draft of the script we wanted to honor that you know because obviously you know in terms of payment you know, they would get the full payment and the full residuals for it. And so, you know, anytime you stick your somebody else's name on it, then you suddenly split the payment. And that just Mm. didn't seem like a fair thing to do. So then we've got, I think your first written by credit was Blood Fever. So does that mean that you came up with the story from beginning to end? And then, do you you know what I mean? What what does that mean? That you, you, obviously you were in the room when they were breaking the story, but had you pitched that idea to them of doing a Ponfar episode? Is that where that came from? Well, it's funny because... Obviously, having a two, you know having Tuvok, having a Vulcan character on the show, you know there was always the idea of, you know in the back of our minds about doing a Ponfar episode with him. But when we came to, to talk about how actually doing the episode, it was it was tricky to come up with a, a way to do it that hadn't been done before. You know that wasn't just going to be a copy of a Muck Time from the original series. And I remember talking about it in the room. You know, which characters maybe could we do it with? And we settled on Bolana. Because she always had kind of the similar trying to keep her emotions, her, her in her mind, her negative emotions suppressed. And so what would happen if those emotions were basically let out of the bag? And so she seemed like an interesting character to do it with. So I seem to remember that that idea really came up out of out of the whole room talking about doing a Ponfar episode rather than something that I pitched independently. Um, but because we hadn't bought it from a freelancer and it was generated by the staff, uh, I got the credit for uh, it. I see. Right. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Right. And it's, uh, there's so much in that episode. I was really struck uh, watching it again recently. I mean, there's, you know, all the stuff with Belana and Tom, big, you know, uh, sort of plot point there. You also throw in the Borg. Um, there's, it, it, it feels like there's kind of a lot going on, if you know what I mean. Um, was it a challenge to write to kind of get all that into one story? Uh, no, I, I remember that one being a lot of fun to write, actually. Have, having a lot of good mm-hmm. material is a good thing. 
and it just gives you a lot of stuff to play with rather than trying to stretch out one concept maybe longer than it than it, it can, can withstand you know having a lot of material really gives you a, a lot of good notes to hit and there were some quite last minute rewrites is that right that w- w- when they brought tom down is that is that right that's, that's what my reading uh, was suggesting that i think tuvok was involved more initially in the draft that you'd written and then that so- somewhere the decision was made no we want to make this about the Tom Bellana will they won't they uh, relationship and so it was you know while they were shooting there were kind, there was kind of rewriting going on is that is that right would, would that be a normal thing I, that was I, happening I don't on recall Star it that way that actually I, I, I remember it being Tom oh, okay. Bellana pretty much the whole time that we were breaking the story um, you know I mean oh, Tuvok obviously had to be involved you know as a Vulcan and mm. sort of explaining what was going on but he was, I believe, he was always going to be right. up on the ship dealing with Vorik and the Doctor. This could be like when you get interviews with people that, that rely on their Wikipedia pages. And, uh, you know, half the information is wrong. Could be someone at yes. Memory Alpha. As, yes, uh, Wikipedia has is not always the most reliable thing. No, spreading unreliable stories. Okay, okay. Well, that's interesting to know. But speaking of the Tom and Bellana thing, this is around the time I think you were also uh, credited as a story editor. Um, as well as a scriptwriter uh, and a story editor on every episode, presumably. What, what does that involve? Is that is that similar to what we have over here these days? You have a script editor. Uh, is it a kind of continuity responsibility? What, what is it a kind of a pass over everything for quality? I mean, what, what does that role involve? Well, it actually, it, it doesn't involve um, any more responsibilities. It's basically getting a promotion. <laughs> you know, it's just getting promoted from staff writer to story editor to executive story editor to co-producer. Um, but it doesn't really involve uh, separate responsibilities. Like you don't actually go through and like do, you know, a, a grammar edit or anything like that on the script. It's it's really mm-hmm. just you right. have one more oh, year okay. of experience. Oh, I see. Okay. So, so all these titles are kind of... Um slightly uh they remind me there's that ds9 episode where there's a bajoran they have to give they have to give him a, a role and they come up with this role of navark and no one knows quite what it means but it's <laughs> you know it's impressive yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, like that that's interesting okay so it so it doesn't mean you see i was imagining that maybe it meant you were kind of the one checking that from week to week because presumably someone must be doing that checking that from week to week you know relationships are kind of in the same place and we haven't you know got people together one week and then forgotten we got them together the next or whatever well that's that something that we all anyway. kept track of as a staff you know and that right, you know okay. we had that's interesting. you know we, we we were the ones that kept track of of the continuity basically mm. and if, if we i guess made a huge mistake then the script coordinator or the script supervisor would tell us about it and i did notice watching your episodes there are quite a lot of quite meaty Tom and Bellana scenes. Was that just a coincidence or was that something that you kind of lent into? Because um, a lot of the, even if they're kind of inconsequential scenes, they feel, uh, again, I suppose that that sense of being interested in the character dynamics, it may not even be the B story. It may just be a kind of a filler scene, but it, it feels like they're sort of advancing that story. And I suppose that's what I mean about the serialization that is kind of drip fed through different episodes. Uh, actually just watching your episodes you get quite an insight into that relationship and how it develops well i definitely was interested in that relationship Mm. you know again blood fever did kind of kick it off and so i felt a little bit more invested in it maybe and uh you know we all really liked you know the 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 elements of continuity that carried from one episode to the next you know even though each episode is written to be a standalone that you could sort of watch it out of order and still know what was going on I think we were all fond of the episode of the elements that carried over from one episode to the next. And you worked on, you know, in this period, I'd say you worked on some real sort of fan favourite episodes. I mean, Message in a Bottle, uh, The Omega Directive. These are, you you know, so much fun, these episodes. I'm kind of curious. There's also a couple that 
it seems to me the kind of fan response to them has shifted maybe over time. I'm thinking of Displaced and also Retrospect. And I don't know whether that's something that you're kind of aware of, uh, particularly Retrospect. I mean, I, th- I think Displaced is a little bit more of a an ambiguous one, but certainly some people I know have issues with that episode. But Retrospect is one that I find watching it today is very difficult because it 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 seems to be saying something quite uncomfortable and i don't i'm sure that's not what the intention was when you wrote it but i'm curious how that comes about and how you feel about that you know if if something you've written is sort of taken a certain way uh you know years down the line what that's like yeah no retrospect has not aged particularly well i mean especially in the me too era it, it really could be misinterpreted um i mean originally it was inspired by uh actually the mcmartin's pool case um, you know, where the kids had sort of had these repressed memories that had been, you know, uncovered. And it was all these horrible things about like satanics, you know, rituals and abuse and all that kind of thing that turned out not to be true. And so we kind of took that. And there was also um, a psychologist, uh, Elizabeth Loftus, at the time had come out with all those studies about how easy it was to sort of induce memories that had never happened, even in adults, not only kids, but, you know, to, to tell kid, to tell, tell an adult oh, do you remember this incident from your childhood? And to induce them to remember this thing that had never happened when they were kids. And so we took that and thought, what if that happened to one of our characters? That they had a repressed memory that was recovered and it turned out not to be true. That's really where it started. Um, and so the fact that it had a parallel to, to sexual assault was kind of kind of the secondary storyline. You know, the secondary element that was kind of grafted onto the what was supposed to be a story about memories and uh, unfortunately as i said i think that the episode has not aged very well i wonder whether it's sort of a case of i mean you know we were talking about this idea of star trek doing allegory as a way of storytelling and it's almost like you've got two allegories there and they're sort of working against so you've got the story that's the surface level of the story that's taking place in 23 whatever in the future in space and then you've got one allegory that's doing one thing and another allegory that's doing another because i mean the sexual assault stuff is I would say it is there. I mean, in terms oh, of is. the language of violation and the fact, the way that some of those scenes play out. I don't know. I just wonder, is that a case of drawing too much on that real world stuff, on that kind of, for um, a sort of reality? I mean, it grounds the episode, but then it ends up making it uh, quite uncomfortable, the direction that it goes in, yeah. because it seems to be seems to be on the wrong side of the issue. I suppose that's the... That's the problem with it. Um, that, that is a problem uh, with it. Is it uh, I, I can see how it would be misinterpreted, uh, you know, that, oh, we shouldn't have believed her. But mm. again, that really was not the intent of the episode at all. The intent was that it was it was going to start with a false memory. And could one of our characters be convinced that something that didn't happen actually happened? And uh, in retrospect, you know, obviously I would have. I would have chosen a different storyline for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I- I'm just curious, at the time, was there any kind of anxiety about it or about the sensitivities there? Or was it just a case of everyone was like focused on this is what we're doing and didn't really see that coming? Do you know what I mean? Uh, I-, I really think it was that we were focused on the story that we we were trying to tell and didn't really... Mm consider you know how is it going to be interpreted 25 years from now so if you were telling that story today you would basically stick with the recovered memory side of it 
but lose the all the sexual stuff in a sense or not the sexual stuff but the kind of that's interesting yes i would whereas i, I would guess a lot it. of people might just not touch it with a barge pole these i mean these days <laughs> people are very you know cautious aren't they about these sort of things but that's an interesting one tell me about seven of nine because she's a fascinating character and i mean but also quite a contradictory one in ways that to some degree tie into i mean maybe one of the reasons that that episode has that sexual dimension is how sexualized she is as a character um i mean there must have been discussions in the room about this new character at what point was it clear she was going to be dressed like that and she was going to be kind of made up like that and so on i mean i mean had you been conceiving storylines for her before that visual aspect of it was made apparent if you know what i mean and did that influence yes the storylines going forward uh yes i mean we talked about the character again without without the visuals <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and right. and really considered her as you know the former borg and you know the sort of the the interesting elements of that which i and i still think that she was really a great character and that the actress did a wonderful job mm. with her uh i think that the, yeah. the choice of outfit was kind of unfortunate it's interesting i mean in some ways maybe that's just as well that you had had a vision of this character in your minds before seeing that because that enabled you to write as you say a complicated interesting uh dynamic character almost despite the the surface level um but i suppose it does make me feel it's one of those and, and these happen in star trek frequently where there's a kind of a slight uh maybe conflict's the wrong word but there there are there are different elements pushing in different directions and the writers are maybe pushing one way and then there's producers pushing another I assume that's what was going on with Seven was, you know, I think Rick Berman was the one who was keen for her to be a babe, right? You know, and so yeah. there's this kind of pressure coming from yeah. that direction. H- how was that sort of handled? I mean, how did, and say for Jerry as a, a woman running that room, I mean, was that a difficult kind of dynamic to manage at times? The You know, because Voyager obviously was a kind of very feminist show in, in some ways, and this was a slightly sort of anti-feminist gesture, at least on the face of it. I don't remember having an awful lot of conversations about that because, again, we were we were looking at the character from from a different point of view. You know, we we were just concentrating on how to use her in stories and how to make her dramatically interesting. And you know, the, the, again, the costume mm-hmm. choice was kind of maybe it was in the back of our minds somewhat. But you know, and of course, you know, Jerry is a is a beautiful woman, and so that was probably in the back of our minds as well. But I mean, just speaking for myself, I mean, my focus was really on how can we make her more interesting. And the fact that she was not a Starfleet character gave her a lot more leeway to be um, to confront the captain, to, to disagree with the captain, and to have a lot more conflict with our characters, which really made her for uh, made for a very interesting character because most of our guys were supposed to get along with each other because they were all Starfleet. And actually, I think you, you know, again, going back to this idea of continuity, season four of Voyager, many people would say uh, is the best season of Voyager, and I think a lot of it is because of the way Seven is introduced and that kind of thread running through the season. And obviously, you know, some people complain that Voyager kind of becomes the Seven of Nine show or the Seven and the Doctor show that those characters kind of, a bit like Data in Next Gen, become so popular and so central that they sort of steal focus. But I think in that season, it absolutely works that you know she's this new character. We've got to get to know her. And we really do see her change quite a lot over the course of those episodes to the point where, you know, in the Omega Directive, for example, she is so tempted to disobey orders, but she doesn't. And it's quite an interesting transition that you reach with that episode. I think that you get Seven, you know, doing something that she would not have done at an earlier point in the season. Well, I really like the uh, relationship between Seven and Janeway. I thought that that really worked very well. 
you know, with Janeway as a mentor figure and almost like a mother figure and Janeway and uh, Seven being sort of the rebellious teenager who does come to appreciate that the captain has a point, <laughs> you know, and, and really should be the captain mm-hmm. and really is in charge. That relationship is fantastic, I think. And it it really surprised me to learn years later that, you know, the, the two actresses were really not getting on at this point, And yet they were able to play this kind of growing bond. Was that something that in the writer's room you're aware of, you know, if there's a kind of tension on set uh, and that you have to deal with? Or do you just kind of, that's not your business, you know, and, and get on with it? You kind of have to set it aside, um, you know, and, and really focus on what, you know, telling the good stories and, and using the characters to the best mm-hmm. of, of your ability. And what was it then that made you choose to leave Voyager uh, towards the end of that season. I mean, it was around the same time that Jerry was leaving. Was there kind of a sense that that was sort of closing a book and obviously Branham was going to take over and it was going to be, I mean, was there an idea the show was kind of going to be revitalised in some ways or go in some new direction? I suppose it did go in more of a kind of action-adventure direction after that in some ways. A little bit. Also, I mean, I Star Trek was the only thing that I had ever done professionally and it was, you know, kind of wanted to see what, what else was out there and what else I could do. Before we go, Lisa, uh, give our listeners an idea of what you've been up to recently. I mean, we know you're you're back in the Star Trek universe with the um, uh, Explorer magazine. Are we going to see more writing from you on Trek? I know you've been writing novels in the last few years. Do you think is a Trek novel something that would ever appeal to you? Or, or even going back to, you know, Trek is back on the small screen in a big way. I mean, is that something that would still appeal to you to go back to that sandbox? Uh, well, the Star Trek sandbox is a whole lot of fun to play with, um, and mm. uh, I would definitely would plan to do more short stories for the Star Trek Explorer magazine. Yeah, I'd be happy to go back and, and work on another Star Trek show. You know, I love Picard, I love Discovery, but uh, at this point, I'm trying to create my own material, you know, my own screenplays and my own uh, uh, pilot scripts for my own series and novels and so working on original material is, is pretty much where I'm focusing right now. Fantastic. Well, uh, we'll look forward to hearing about it and seeing it, whatever form it might take. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. You're blended all right. <laughs> <laughs>